right, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6 is where we're going to be today. We do this throughout the summer. Last year we did it. I wasn't here because I was gone for most of the summer. Um, But we do a little mini-series kind of specifically at the campus. And and last year we did something, and we want to kind of go back to what we felt that was good because we, we had many different topics within the series on habits or or spiritual disciplines and uh, we only covered three last year because it's a three-week mini-series and this year we want to enter back into that in the three weeks we have within July to enter back into a little mini-series on habits on spiritual disciplines for us as the people of God as we approach the Lord through fasting and prayer and scripture meditation that I'm learning more and more We can talk about the really big fundamentals or the big things within Christianity, but oftentimes where people struggle is in the rudimentary, uh, just day-to-day operational things within Christianity. And so I thought it would be great for us to dive in and speak into a couple of areas within spiritual disciplines to see how we might be able to breathe life into our congregation to go to the feet of the Lord in many different disciplines and see how God doesn't move over the next number of weeks and months. You know, over the last couple of years, we've had different moments and times like prayer weeks where we as a church across all of our campuses they dedicate time to pray and fast. We have a prayer room calling people to come in different hours of the day and pray and then celebrating our Troy campus where we pray and worship together after a week of fasting. And so I thought, man, we've talked about it a number of times. I would love to dig into a passage because oftentimes when we talk about fasting, I get a lot of questions or we as the church get a lot of questions like, what does that look like? Or why do we do that? Or, or whatever it may be. And I would love just to break down the words of Jesus for us to see how it might impact the way that we might live, how we might function within the idea of fasting. But before we do, I just want to ask you a question because it kind of gets my mind going in the right direction. Uh, when, when you think about it, do you, do you have areas within your life where you practice self-denial? Practice self-denial. It's an interesting question because in, in, in where we live and how we live, we don't actually have to practice self-denial very often at all. Everything and anything is at our fingertips within a cell phone, an iPad. If I want to buy something on the internet, I'm blown away. Sometimes it will be there within hours on my front doorstep. Man, if you go through the fast food line and it's not fast enough, we're irritated, Right? Starbucks is like, man, you should have my latte done in this amount of time. I ordered online, so I don't even have to wait in line. I just walk in, pick up my drink, and I walk out. I'm done. We we don't practice self-denial much. We actually practice self-indulgence often. And so when we think about the idea of fasting, it's very much in the idea of self-denial. I love uh, how Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this. This is what he says. He says, if there is no element of self-denial in our lives, if we give free reign to the desires of the flesh, we shall find it hard to train for the service of Christ. When the flesh is satisfied, it is hard to pray with cheerfulness or to devote oneself to a life of service. Do you hear us hard in that? At the end of the day, if we have no areas of our lives of self-denial... Our, our desires will be so free to go as, as all they want 
it will be hard for, to train for the service of Christ because at the end of the day, training for Christ or living for Christ is often, not always, in different elements, practicing self-denial. If you're to live selflessly, how do you, you have to deny your own rights. Let's say Jesus did. He left heaven to come to earth, setting aside all that was his and he had right to, to come and give his life for us. And then he calls us to walk in that same vein after him. Husbands, it calls us that we might live like Christ and give up ourselves for our spouses. I mean, you could all throughout scripture look at the idea as a follower of Jesus is often a self-denial of my own rights and what I deserve and giving up things to follow Jesus. And when you look at fasting, it's an interesting thing when you self-deny one from food. There's something that happens when we deny ourselves something. There's a heightened awareness that happens. Last year, Sarah and I, I was just reminded of this. Sarah and I were talking, I believe, yesterday uh, about our time uh, when we went out west. Last year during my sabbatical, we went out west for almost a month and just lived in my Jeep Wrangler camping, travel around. I still get a lot of weird looks when I say that. Um, a family of five, and it was amazing, and we saw some amazing things, and we spent a lot of time together and all of that, but it was, it was interesting talking to Sarah yesterday. She's like, my, my favorite part about our entire trip together for almost a month living in a Wrangler was that we had no technology. Like we just made an active decision that during that month, we were gonna have no social media. We really weren't gonna text with friends. We we're gonna kind of put our phones on airplane mode and just basically use them as cameras if we we're gonna take any pictures. But really crazy enough for like three and a half weeks, we didn't have any phones or technology. Our kids were only able to use them on the crazy long drives in the back of a Jeep Wrangler. And it was amazing and profound what happened because when I took away those things, there was this heightened awareness of my family and the presence they had in my life where, I mean, it was just sweet and good. Not always sweet. Setting up a tent in the rain is horrible and you have nowhere to go. But it, most of it was sweet because you had, you had this heightened awareness that they were present with you and you were doing life with them and you had great conversations and great moments of prayer together and, and just not all spiritual, but I think it's spiritual still, just general enjoying each other because you weren't distracted by all this other stuff. There was this heightened awareness of the presence of Sarah, the presence of my girls, and just being together was amazing. Saw a lot of amazing things, did a lot of amazing things, but it was just their presence, which was the gift. One definition of fasting says this, that when we fast, fasting reaffirms our utter dependence upon God by finding in him a source of sustenance beyond food. And there's something that happens, and I'll talk about it in a little bit, when we fast specifically from food that heightens my awareness and my dependence on the Lord and his presence with me, that I might be sustained by him spiritually rather than the sustenance of food. And Jesus speaks to this in Matthew chapter 6. I think it's one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, maybe one of the most important in all of Scripture. But what I want you to see from this just few verses 
in Matthew chapter 6 is this, to live for the reward of heaven and not the praise of men. That is the essence of this entire section within the Sermon on the Mount, to live for the reward of heaven rather than the praise of man. So let's read the passage together. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, this is what it says. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that the fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 17, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. So, just a little bit of background on this text or this section of the Sermon on the Mount. This is the central, central part of the Sermon on the Mount. So you got to remember, the Sermon on the Mount is not cut up like we have it, the Beatitudes, you know, this section, that section. Jesus, in one setting, on the side of a hill, gave the entire sermon. And, And so in this section, it's like the center of the sermon, highly structured on the idea of piety or righteousness or right living. And he talks about prayer. He talks about giving. He talks about uh, um, fasting and these three areas of piety. He talks about within the text, we're going to look at them all, but really focus in on fasting. And it's so structured. You can see how Jesus literally almost has a sermon written where it starts off with the negative, like don't be like the hypocrites in each section. And then a positive, do this and then a promise in each section. So it wasn't just off the cuff. This is real, highly structured in the very center of the Sermon on the Mount, the most structured part in the entire sermon. And so when you just look at the first verse, I just want you to see a few things about fasting today. And may it, in a moment, I want to call you to, here by the end of today, is to take some step forward in engaging God in this manner if you don't regularly or if you have not before. Because I think there's something that God desires of us. You see that in the very first section or the very first verse. And the first thing I want you to see is that fasting can be hypocritical. And Jesus says that from the very beginning over and over again. In verse 16, it says, And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. So just off the bat, from the very beginning, I just want to make a very strong point in the sense that Jesus assumes that you, a disciple of Jesus, will fast. You notice in the text, it doesn't say, and if you fast, it says, and when you fast. So from the very beginning, it opens my mind to something that I at least need to pray about, I need to think about, I need to somewhat engage to the best of my ability. Now, I understand that there's certain medical issues. You might want to consult a doctor, but I'm not talking about praying for 40 days in the wilderness like Jesus did. It might be an hour. It might be a day a week, a month. It might be a season throughout the year, whatever it may be. But Jesus here is assuming that his disciples would be fasting, not just if you do it. And it's fascinating to me because so many believers struggle with the huge things of like, man, where is God calling me? And where should I move? And what college should I go to? And who should my spouse be? And all these different things. And we struggle with the rudimentary things that are declared in the Bible for us to do. When you fast, do this. So I I just start with just a question when is the last time you engaged God by fasting? 
have you ever? And I don't fault you. There's no shame on my part for you. And I just want to, you to engage and experience something maybe you've never experienced in going before God in this way. Like maybe you've never been taught. Maybe you've never been engaged. Never you've been, maybe you've never been called to. Man, I want to be God's voice today for you that you might engage in that way in a culture where we are in, not in a place where we are restricting ourselves, but we are indulging ourselves. Oh, to fight that in the presence of God. That's not the point of it, but man, what an amazing thing that God would call us to this, that our, pa- our persons, when we're fasting, uh, he says, are not to draw attention by others. The point, this is why I say it, it could be hypocritical because here he says there's this tendency for us, for others to see us or to know about us. That, man, he's saying the point is that you not come into church and you're just like, man, walking funny. And you're like, oh, how are you, Jim? I'm doing all right. Been fasting for 30 days. God's really speaking to me. Right? We'll come to this in a moment. I do believe it's fine to let people know you're fasting. We'll get to that in a moment. But the point is, at the end of the day, he's saying that you would actually do what's normal to life so that you're not purposely drawing attention to yourself, that you would not live for the praise of men, but you would live for the reward of heaven is what he's getting at. Right? And and he says, when you fast, don't be look gloomy like the hypocrites. So he's who's he's talking about here. Any idea? Hypocrites, you could talk at church. Who's it? Someone said it back there, just afraid to speak up in church. It's fine. Uh, the Pharisees. At the end of the day, really, Jesus is pointing to the Pharisees in that moment. And the Pharisees kind of get a raw deal with in Scripture. We look at them very negatively. But at the end of the day, they're the conservatives in Scripture. They're the people that are doing their best to follow the law. So they make laws so that you don't break the laws. You don't even get close to the law of breaking it, right? At the end of the day, Jesus is pointing to them. They were well-respected. They were great at following the law. They had laws to help them follow the laws. And he says, man, don't be like them. And he gives some examples. He says, man, don't disfigure your face. Uh, Earlier, when he talks about, at the end of the day, the whole text, the whole chapter of Matthew chapter 6 is under this one banner, chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. That is the crux of this entire section in the sermon, is living for the praise of men rather than the reward of heaven. And Jesus speaking knows that there's this innate brokenness in us for other to live for other people's praise right now. He even talks about it with him giving. He says in verse 2 of chapter 6, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. Right? And then he goes down on prayer. Right? He says, and when you pray, you must not like be like the Hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You've seen this repetition. He says even further on prayer in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask of Him. 
So he's like, man, at the end of the day, there's this tendency for spiritual disciplines to become hypocritical, for us to live in a certain way. But I want to show you something. At the end of the day, a hypocrite to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is not a hypocrite of what you think. He defines it differently. I've always heard a hypocrite, like a hypocrite is, man, you come to church, and I see you at church, and you seem like you're a pretty good believer, you're following the Lord, but when you're at work, you don't live like a believer at all. You're contrary to what a believer would be, or in your neighborhood, or outside of your church people, man, you leave completely, it's like two separate lives, right? That's what I've always heard a hypocrite is, it's like, man, you're a hypocrite, you don't follow Jesus out in the world like you do on Sunday mornings. You're a hypocrite. You put on a mask, essentially, is what it means. But according to Jesus, that's actually not a hypocrite. A hypocrite for him, I mean, he's talking about the Pharisees who actually privately they're doing it and publicly they're doing it. In every aspect, they're doing their best not to follow the law. According to Jesus, a hypocrite is someone who follows Jesus externally or follows God externally for all the wrong reasons, but internally their heart is far from God. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, I'll just let the cat out of the bag, is that we would have the correct disposition of the heart to follow the Lord, that it wouldn't just be about our hands moving and doing for the Lord and following all the right things and and not doing all the wrong things, but that our heart would be in tune with the Lord as a holistic being internally and externally following Jesus. You see, in the text, of the Sermon on the Mount, when he talks about righteousness, it's not like we talk about in other areas of scripture like the Apostle Paul, who talks about imputed righteousness. That when we gave our lives to Christ, we were like a like a term, we were given the righteousness of Jesus. No, he's saying righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount is talking about right living. That's why in chapter six and verse one, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. And so God, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is calling us to live properly as holistic beings. That when your heart is correct, as you enter into fasting, you will long for the Lord, not long for the praise of men, is what he's getting at. That it would be, that's my second point, is that it's about the heart. We'll get there in a a moment. Because the Pharisees weren't living like that. They're living the opposite of that. The Pharisees would fast two days a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Any idea of why that would be Mondays and Thursdays? Well, they said... It was Mondays and Thursdays because that's when Moses ascended and descended Mount Sinai when he received the law. It was Monday and Thursday. Now, crazy enough, it's coincidental that the days were the major market days in the city where people would come and buy and sell, and there was the greatest audience for their pious living was Mondays and Thursdays. And Jesus says, don't be like them. He's saying, At the end of the day, fundamentally, if we are fasting, if we're doing anything for the Lord in trying to gain man's approval, but saying it's for the Lord, he's saying you're not a holistic being. Your hands and your external might be fasting or praying or giving to the needy, as he says in the text. But at the end of the day, your heart is far from me. At the end of the day, that's what Jesus is speaking against. That a hypocrite is someone who does all the right things for Jesus, maybe home, here, and everywhere else. But their heart is far from the Lord. I think, in essence, there's another way for us to be hypocritical in the sense of fasting, that we, 
We seek to gain God's favor through self-sacrifice rather than seek his presence. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like, please hear me, that if you leave this place and you decide, like, man, Jim said that God calls us to this, I want to engage in fasting, don't do it so you can try to somehow earn God's favor. No, I want to call you to do it that you might enter into the presence of the Lord in a way maybe you never have before. You're not earning his favor, you're you're gaining his presence. That we're not called to to deny ourselves food and drink so that we can have some thing from God or try to manipulate God. Like God's not going to give you more attention if you cease to eat once a week. Like God, I gave up cheeseburgers for you. It's hard, but this month I'm not eating pizza. And somehow God's going to look down and be like, man, Jim, you blessed my heart today. Pizza? That is a big deal for you. Like, no, that's not the sense. It's not a tool of manipulation where somehow God guarantees divine intervention or certain results. Like, I don't want you to leave here and get upset. Like, man, maybe you're here and you have a wayward child, as we would say, that maybe just isn't following the Lord. And you're like, man, I'm going to fast for a month like Jesus did in the wilderness, and he's going to bring back my son. And then he doesn't. This isn't a one-for-one tool. This isn't like, man, I just want to use this so I can get what I want from God. No, it's about the presence of God. It's about experiencing him as we follow him and walk with him. The heart of biblical teaching of fasting is that whenever we engage, we encounter the holiness of God. We encounter the presence of God in a heightened awareness. That every time I've ever fasted in my life, I say, Lord, every time I have a growing, or growing pain, those ended a long time ago, a hunger pain, Lord, remind me in that moment to seek you to stop what I'm doing and engage you. Remind me, Lord, to go to you in those moments and say, man doesn't live on bread alone, but every word from you, Lord. You are my sustenance. You are my goodness. You are all that I need. But we turn it oftentimes into some hypocritical thing. Jesus knew that. At the end of the day, that's why he wrote what he wrote. That's why he told what he told the disciples. But I want to show you how fasting is about the heart. At the end of the day, that's the second thing I want you to see in verse 17. It says, but when you fast, anoint your head. So he says, don't disfigure your face. Don't try to draw attention to yourself. But the opposite, he says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. I would just say that's a daily good practice. When you're fasting, excuse me, in verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. I don't know if you know that, but it's a scary thing. But the God of the universe sees you in secret, the good, the bad, the ugly. And in verse 18, the second half, we'll come back to it in our last point. But and your father who sees in secret will reward you, right? So fasting is about the heart. This is what I want to show you at the end of the day. By saying at the end of the day, Jesus in this moment, that we're to anoint our, our heads or wash our faces when we're fasting. He's emphasizing the general normalcy of fasting that should be. It shouldn't be like I said before, that I am purposely trying to look like overwhelmed and distraught, like all I've had is a protein shake in 15 days, I'm doing all right. 
No, he's saying, man, you should just live life as normal. You should go about your day as normal. The difference is what you're going to experience between me and you. And washing your face and anointing your head with oil was a normal practice for them back then. And so back then, you know, with in ancient cultures, uh, oil would give a robust and healthy appearance on your face. And so Jesus is saying, do the normal things that would make you look normal. Don't give some impression that you're you're, you're going through this tough time and fasting. Those people would be like, man, I want to be like Jim. He fasts twice a week. No, he's saying that should be the opposite. It should be quite differently than that. See, Jesus is saying, at the end of the day, what I've learned is that fasting is a holistic spiritual discipline involving the inner and the outer man. You tell me another spiritual discipline where it involves your literal body to remind you about Jesus. That it's a way for us to engage spiritually and physically, internally and externally, that there's some relationship between our bodies and our souls. And Jesus is trying to point it out for us here in this moment. And I personally learned we're connected spiritually, emotionally, physically, uh, uh, mentally. All of those things are intermixed as we are as a holistic being. Follow the Lord. And here's one way that we can engage our bodies and our souls in the same effort spiritually as we move forward. And Jesus is getting, at the end of the day, the inner disposition of our heart and our attitude here towards I will say, um, the reason why that he's saying don't, don't allow your face to be disfigured and make sure you oil your beard and your face and look normal is because, now, don't be offended. Every time in scripture that fasting is spoken of, it's spoken of the food. So if you're doing like a, a social media fast, that's fine. I just think that's more abstinence. It's not necessarily fasting. It's good, and I think it's needed, but at the end of the day, there's something different. There's something unique about taking sustenance, the thing that sustains you, and learning through literal pains that Jesus is my own sustenance. He's the thing that is all that I have, right? That I had a purpose throughout all the scripture. We see it happening that we abstain from physical needs. But at the end of the day, while it involves our physical being, it's about this, it's about our heart. And I show you that here in the whole of the text. The whole point, my personal opinion in studying the Sermon on the Mount at length, the whole point of the entire Sermon on the Mount hinges on Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. When we did this a number of years ago, I told you this, but it's good to point out here because it points to the whole idea of the heart. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, it says this, For I tell you, Jesus in his sermon says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a tall order. Now, I've already told you within the, within the Sermon on the Mount, righteousness here is not talking about imputed righteousness. Because you could very easily be like, amen, my righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees because I have the righteousness of Jesus. That's not what Jesus is getting at. You know, again, in, in chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others. The idea of righteousness here is different within Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. 
So what does Jesus mean by that? I mean, the Pharisees are the greatest of the greats of following the law. They never just didn't follow the law. They made laws upon laws to follow the laws. Like, man, and I stink at reading my Bible every day. How am I going to exceed the, the Pharisees? Is when it comes to the heart. What, what Jesus is getting at, at the end of the day, the way in which your and my righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees is that my heart and my hands, my, my external, are holistic in following Jesus. And that's what he's pointing out in the Pharisees, that we would be people that holistically would follow the Lord. That's why at the end of the day, do you really think that Jesus says, look at, with me again in chapter six, but when you give to the needy, go back to the beginning, the first thing of piety is sharing, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand or your right hand know what's, your, your right hand know what your, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Does that even make sense? Right? So that your giving may be done in secret. Same thing within, within the same ideas within praying. And then the same ideas here with fasting when he says, hey, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may be seen, may not be seen by others, but your father would see it in secret. Can I just ask a question? Do you think God is really cares too much that if I told you that I was fasting? That there's some law that man, like I came up here and said, hey, the first week of January, we as a church are gonna fast and I'm gonna be fasting the entire week. Would you join me? Would you go with me on this spiritual journey? And instantly people in the crowd are like, well, he just lost his spiritual reward because it wasn't in secret. No, that's not the point. Tell me the last time you tried to give on Sunday morning or to someone needy on the street and you're like, don't look, right hand, it's just my left hand. Is this really the point that Jesus is getting across? No, the point that Jesus is getting across is at the end of the day, he knows the proclivity in our own heart and mind to want to gain the attention of man, to get praised by people. And he says, at the end of the day, I'm after your heart. I'm after where you are personally. I'm after not just some like robotic thing you do in fasting and in praying and in giving. I'm interested in your heart, in your soul. And he's saying what he's getting at the end of the day using hyperbolic language is, man, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He's saying at the end of the day, be very careful about your heart. Don't fast for people, fast for me. Don't be generous for people, be generous for me. Don't pray that other people would hear your big words publicly in prayer. No, pray that you could have a conversation with me. Jesus is saying at the end of the day, don't be like the hypocrites, the Pharisees. Be like me, like I am with my father, a holistic being that longs for the presence of our heavenly father and wants to be with him. Fasting is about your heart, about where you are walking with the Lord. And what's beautiful is, in it, God rewards us. That's the last thing we see in the text, right? If you read verse 17 and 18 with me, or 18, that your fasting may be done or may not be seen by others, but by your father who's in secret. And then what does he say? And your father who sees in secret will reward you, that your fasting will be rewarded. This spiritual discipline 
is beautiful because it relates to God as our Father. Now, I don't know what relationship you have with your dad, but one thing I've learned in the last year is that your relationship with your father can highly either enhance or not enhance your relationship with your heavenly father as I can put things on from a heavenly father onto God and then think that that's how I interact with my heavenly father because that's how I interacted with my earthly father, good or bad. And what I want you to see here is at the end of the day, man, you may have had to grow up earning the affection of your father. That man, that's just how things were. Or maybe it's something else, but I just want to tell you at the end of the day, God is not a father like that. He's an unbelievable father that Romans says that God demonstrates his love for us, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. He sent his son for us. That the beautiful thing about our heavenly father is he chose to love you you didn't earn anything. Before you were ever born, God loved you as much as you, 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 you know right now. Before you were ever born, God loves you the same right now as you were before you were born. He chose to love you. It's not earned. It's given. And it's an unbelievable thing. It's a freeing thing at the end of the day. Because why? Our... our, our our Father is the very best in mind for us. He loves us. He longs to be with us. We don't earn it. He just loves us. We have this beautiful relationship with him through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's so good that just a couple chapters later, Matthew says that Jesus said, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven good give gifts to those who ask him? And you can have a killer dad here on earth. And I just want to tell you, God the Father is 10 times better. God the Father is, is like, he's basically like, man, even if you're a good dad here on earth and you're evil, you're broken, you're not fully glorified. Imagine how incredible a dad God the Father is. Amazing. He knows how to give us amazing and good gifts. So then why does he say in secret? He's saying at the end of the day, do this in secret because of your heart or the proclivity of your heart. Not because telling other people is necessarily bad, but because our, 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 our fallen hearts are naturally prone to not gain the affection of our father or the presence of our father, but live for the fleeting, quick praise of men or women. He knows that. And he says, rather than live for the fleeting here in a moment, man, you are great. You're such a spiritual guy. You're such a spiritual woman. Rather than live for that, he says, there's nothing wrong with people saying that. There's nothing wrong with receiving that. It's just, he's saying, where's your heart in it? At the end of the day, he's saying, rather than live for that, your heart living for that, live for me, live for the reward you gain in me. So at the end of the day, this is where we land. What is the reward? for praying and fasting and being generous here. What is the reward? Because at the end of the day, he says, there's a reward to be had. Remember, don't do this, do this, and you'll be rewarded. That's what he says over and over again, through, through, through praying, through giving, through fasting. So what's the reward? It's amazing. The reward is found in giving and in praying 
and in fasting. The reward is found in the doing. The reward is found in the intimacy forged with God in the praying, in the giving, and in the fasting. The reward is Jesus. The reward is him. We break up these texts all the time and preach through them, but it's, it's not a mistake that just after he just got done talking about a section where he promises a reward right after that in verses 19 through 21, it says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven or on earth, excuse me, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures or rewards in heaven where neither moth or rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. What it's saying is, is I'm the reward. Is your treasure in the fleeting praise of men? Is your treasure in some earthly thing or is your, your treasure or am I literally your treasure? Because where your treasure is your heart. The whole point of the whole Sermon on the Mount is the disposition of their heart. Is your heart there? If your heart's there, man, you want to engage because when I engage in fasting, there's, there's something that I experience in the Lord that I don't often ever experience. There's a, there's a deep, profound goodness that I experience with him. It's the closing illustration in this section for Jesus. He's saying, man, after all of this, where's your heart? Do these things with the right heart and you'll lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, which are found in Christ. They're not fleeting of this world, but they're in me. I don't have much time left, but it's amazing. Last, last week I was, I was gone. Uh, not last week, the week before I was gone in Wyoming with a group of pastors I've been walking with for about a year now. And um, I was in this remote part of Wyoming with these guys that were fly fishing. I had no cell service, loved these moments. And um, every morning, I, well, I first got there and I sit down next to the river there and it's beautiful and there's mountains and I, it's where I experienced the Lord the most. And, and um, I hadn't been reading anything specific in scripture. And so I sat down and, and um, I was like, hey, I'll just, you know, open up the Bible, not, not open up to any passage, but I'm just going to open up and look where I might start reading today. And I opened up, and it's crazy how this works. I opened up to John 15. Just I wasn't planning on just reading whatever I wrote, open to, but I was just going to open up my Bible and then start leaving through where I was going to start reading. And my Bible opened to John 15, and, and John 15 is pretty significant to me for the last year. It's where God's been tracking with me to abide with him rather than do stuff for him. And God took me back to John 15 that, He's the vine and we are the branches. And long story short, I'm sitting there with the Lord on the edge of the river. And he says this in verse 19 or 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. And God reminded me that at the beginning of my sabbatical last year, John 15 was very significant for me. And I started reading through the Psalms and Psalm 1 attached to John 15 with me. I went back and read John or Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the, or does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
And on this law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. As I sat next to a very large tree on the edge of a river, God in a moment was reminding me, Jim, all the people you're going back to, you might preach for, they might tell you do a good job or you don't. But at the end of the day, Jim, all that doesn't need a hill of beans. What you long for at the end of the day is my presence. And he wanted to meet me in that place and say, Jim, I want, I want to re-pull you in your heart to long for my presence as we go through ebbs and flows in life. And what's amazing is that God meets you there. I didn't ask for anything. God just met me there. It was actually God's doing. And I think in this moment, God might be doing that for you as well. The, the thing that you might be missing or, or may, the thing that might take you to a place in this moment or in this season, as we walk through the next couple of weeks through these different disciplines, the first one might, you might just leave this place and be like, man, I never really engaged or haven't for a long, long time. Maybe it might just be like, hey, I'm just gonna take an hour a day if that's so hard. Or I'm gonna take a day the next week and just fast and meditate on the Lord and see what the Lord does. And just every time I'm hungry, long for the Lord and pray to the Lord. I might take a couple days each month or whatever it may be. I'm gonna leave that up between you and the Lord to discern. But I do feel strongly that this is something that God calls us to because there's a special measure of the grace of God where you experience his presence there. And God wants your heart. And one of the ways he gains it is through this way. So I wanna pray and ask God that he might do that now before we leave. Today. Let's pray together. God, thanks for this, um, this Sunday on this day for this moment. I know there's people in this room that probably have never engaged you in this manner. Um, I know there's people in this room, God, that don't regularly engage you in this way. And so I ask Holy Spirit, not for anything other than you just to speak to us and call us to engage as we, maybe it's over the next three weeks as we walk through spiritual disciplines that they might say, God, man, one day a week for the next three weeks, I wanna just take a break and pause and ask to encounter you because really what I'm longing for is just your presence and nothing else. And God, I ask that you would move supernaturally in our hearts and our minds to meet us in those places as we walk in obedience and that you would guard our hearts against the fleeting praise of people over the heavenly reward in you. May we build our lives on you, Jesus, as you are the example of this in all that we do. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.